This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, January 31st. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Amy Levick steps down from Trust for Community Housing, G is for Government previews Telluride Town Council, Capital Conversation talks wildfire and housing, and a mountain weather forecast. But first, Telluride lost a member of its community last week. John Thurkle was found dead in his apartment on Friday morning. He was 45 years old. The cause and manner of death are under investigation. Crippen Funeral Home will attend to services. Thurkle is survived by his sister, Carol, and his mother, Pat. After a half a decade at the helm, Amy Levick is stepping down as the executive director of the Trust for Community Housing. COVID gave me a lot of time to think about things, and it's a very personal decision to step away. It doesn't have anything to do with housing not being important or not feeling like there's more to do with housing. Um, I just kind of reached a point where I felt like there's some other things that that I need to give some attention to. Aside from her role as executive director, Levick is also a co-founder of the nonprofit. She started it with Jean Wheel and Catherine Borsnick. I started doing research way back in 2012, 2013, and just kind of kept talking about the idea, um, you know, of having a nonprofit that was devoted to housing um, locally. And when I met um, Catherine and Jean, they found that to be a very interesting idea, too. And it was in 2017, 2018. So it's been four or five years. No stranger to government, Levick worked as the planning director for Telluride and has served as a council member and mayor for the town, in addition to San Miguel County Commissioner. She says she knows what government can do when it comes to housing. But she wanted to look at the issue from a different angle. In Telluride, we have a very generous philanthropic community, and it seemed like that was one of the missing pieces, that um, there is a need for nonprofit um, opportunity to look at housing a little bit differently and maybe add something to the equation that couldn't be done just by government alone. She adds having direct connection with the individuals the trust has helped is the best part of her work. Certainly through the Housing Opportunity Fund that gives grants for people getting into housing. And then hearing their stories and just seeing um, you know, how their life changes as a result of being able to um, purchase or rent some more stable housing. And, you know, that that just contributes to community. It makes for a stronger community. In her mind, housing is a fundamental building block for a strong community. Everybody needs it. It's not just, you know, one special interest group or another, but it's, it's critical to having a strong community. And while she's stepping away from the job, Levick notes the work isn't over and she hasn't lost interest in the subject. We're always playing catch up. I mean, I... I can't think of a time in my 30 plus years in Telluride when we've had adequate housing. Well, maybe maybe during the recession, you know, maybe during the recession there was enough housing for everybody. But then again, there wasn't a lot of work at that point. So, you know, we're always playing catch up. But she's grateful for an increased awareness in the issue. I know we've lost a lot in the past year or two, and that's been heartbreaking to see that happen. You know, some of the some of the private long-term rentals 
um, were sold and went away. Um, but it spurred more construction. You know, I think the town's moving ahead with three projects, one with the county, and Mountain Village is bringing housing online. You know, so some of what we've done with the trust is bring awareness to that, certainly through our economic research and you know, showing how important housing is. And she's going to keep her eye on the work moving forward. Personally, I'd like to see um, the Trust for Community Housing creating an active land banking program and partnering with other organizations to bring more land, um, to, to make more land available for affordable housing. Another thing that is a new program, and it hasn't necessarily been developed in, in completely, but there's some good work going on um, at coming up with a secondary mortgage program that will bring down the cost of financing a home. So one increasing supply and the other, um, you know, helping, helping people purchase. Levick's final day as executive director for the Trust for Community Housing was January 31st. Telluride Town Council is back for its meeting on Tuesday, and housing is on the agenda. In this installment of G is for Government, Council Member Geneva Shawnette shares what to expect. Have a listen. Hey Geneva, thanks for joining me for another G is for Government. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Telluride Town Council is back on Tuesday, and it's a pretty um, maybe light agenda, but some very important things to be talking about. Um, You're going to be starting off the morning with just one work session that's going to take the full two hours. Can you share what that work session is? Yes. So um, the big topic at the last election um, through citizen-initiated ordinances and otherwise um, was short-term rentals. And we as a council kind of made the commitment and knew that depending on what happened in the um, election, we were probably going to have to make some changes or revisit um, what passed and make some adjustments if necessary. So this, that's what this uh, work session is about. Um, you can find it the, in the packet materials the different topics we will be covering, but some include um, clarification on uh, a one-in, one-out waitlist policy for the number of licenses issued, uh, potentially discussing a primary residence exemption from the cap on licenses, uh, what we're going to do about our expiring um, uh, suspension to issue licenses and all of that. So all things short-term rental we will be discussing. This is it's a work session, which means that there's no official decisions going to be made. But do you have a sense on kind of what um, a timeline could be for any of the the topics that you're discussing moving forward if there needs to be any sort of um, ordinance or official change made to um, regulations in town? Yeah, so usually what we'll do is after um, after we have a work session, the options are to either decide that we need more time to discuss, so schedule another work session, or if we feel like we've gotten to a general um, concept that, that the majority of council desires, 
then we'll direct town staff to draft new language or new ordinances or laws. And then once and then at the next meeting, we would vote on that, um, and then at the following meeting, we would vote on it again. So all of our ordinances have to be voted on twice, um, and coming out of a work session, we don't make any final decisions, but we do direct staff to take next steps depending on what those are. So that's going to take up the whole morning. What is the afternoon going to look like? We will be hearing... Um, we will be meeting our new interim uh, town manager, Greg Sun, who's going to be with us uh, until we hire a permanent um, town manager in the coming months. Uh, and we will be voting for the second time on uh, the 5G regulations that the town has uh, re- uh, regarding new towers that need to be installed and that sort of thing. Um, then in the town manager's report, um, we'll be discussing uh, some promotions. Um, Greg's going to sort of be introducing himself to the community, and uh, we will talk about sales tax and real estate transfer tax, as we always do. Right. So that's about it. Perfect. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's short and sweet, but Geneva, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Absolutely. Thanks so much. The state legislature is kicking into gear this week, discussing everything from wildfire to housing. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO's State House reporter Scott Franz shares the latest. Hey, Scott, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. The state legislature, you've reported there, they've kind of been on a little bit of a slow start, but are really clicking into gear and debating a lot of bills starting this week. What is that looking like at the Capitol? It's easy to forget that we kind of have this lull at the start of each session. That's really because they're they're kind of deep in budget stuff and budget hearings. So it usually takes a couple weeks until we get to the debate phase, but it's finally here. And, uh, you know, it, you can tell there's a, a lot more energy in the building. There's more lobbyist activity um, because there's dozens of bills that are um, now in the pipeline, um, starting today and continuing, you know, every day, likely through uh, through May. I mean, you just mentioned it, that there's obviously a lot more activity going on. What are the things that you really enjoy about getting to cover these bills that are having debates that maybe are a little bit um, exciting, I guess, <laughs> I guess you could say? Yeah, you know, you can read the bills online. But, you know, when you read them, so many of them are, are pretty impersonal, right? Like they're they're written with the help of lawyers and, you know, it's very archaic language. And um, gosh, you could put yourself to sleep if you read, you know, 10 bills in a row probably. But, um, you know, what I find interesting is, you know, this is the time that, that people come to testify and people actually start showing up at the Capitol, um, you know, to weigh in on issues that are important to them and, and that bring bring things to life, um, you know, bring issues to life. There are a number of bills coming up that will discuss both, you know, wildfire mitigation, but then also response in the wake of. Can you talk a little bit about what those bills are? Right. So there's there's a couple this week that get their first hearings. One uh, would distribute about $5 million to volunteer Uh, fire departments, mostly to replace outdated equipment, but there's a new addition for uh, mental health care 
uh, for volunteer firefighters, something that you know, hasn't been covered at the state level before. Now, what I, I'm still waiting for on the wildfire front is, you know, all these bills that we're talking about were crafted before the Marshall Fire struck, um, you know, became the most destructive in the state's history. You know, they're with what we saw, you know, the previous fire year with Cameron Peak, East Troublesome. Um, I think there's still a lot of interest from lawmakers on the policy. Um, and I, I've heard kind of vague references to climate policy and land use and still really trying to figure out what that means. I was able to ask the governor last week, you know, what policies he wants lawmakers to support. Um, and he said it was things like resources and, you know, better perimeter um, prevention, you know, things like taking steps to, to mitigate um, around neighborhoods. But, but until we actually see those policies, I'll, I'll be interested to see, um, you know, how much of an impact they'll have. This morning, actually, you also sat in on a press conference talking about housing in the state. Obviously, this is something that so many communities have been talking about and discussing on a local level, but it's also getting some interest on the state level as well with lawmakers. What was that press conference that you were at and what are some of the conversations happening in the halls of the legislature surrounding affordable housing? Yeah, so th this press conference was called to share the results of the summer, uh, the summer projects lawmakers had. You know, they had an affordable housing task force to try and figure out how to spend about $400 million of federal um, coronavirus relief money. Um, you know, I've, I've reported on the main highlights, the revolving loan fund. Um, there's some new funding for modular housing. But there was also some new information, you know, as they kind of compiled all of the feedback they heard over the summer. It, you know, we all know that the housing situation in Colorado is, is very difficult, that many communities are experiencing these crises that they've never seen before, you know, losing some of their most important residents because, you know, there's no affordable places to live. And, um, you know, this, this report was really an acknowledgement that, you know, one fact that stood out to me was that Colorado has lost 300,000 housing units that were affordable for people, you know, making um, $45,000 or less a year. And, you know, those, when you think about that, group losing that many units that they can afford, it really makes you think about the ripple effect and the impacts not only they're seeing, you know, trying to find housing, but, but what communities go through when, you know, you have the, the moderate to low income residents unable to find places to live. I can imagine that, you know, for folks listening, it's almost sharing information that a lot of people feel like they already know. Does it seem like by having this in study data that it will help to make some more movement maybe in terms of taking steps to try and address some of the challenges that Colorado has? I think lawmakers think that, but um, it has been already pretty slow process, right? Like these were federal dollars that arrived in the state, um, you know, last summer. Um, you know, lawmakers will say, you know, they need to take time because they want to spend it right. It's $400 million. You don't just want to spend it on a whim. We won't know for a while the impact of these funds. There was an acknowledgement, though, that lawmakers can't solve everything. And a lot of this issue 
you know, needs the attention of cities and counties. So, yeah, this is an issue that, that I'll be following closely and digging deeper on now that we know what the general plan for the money is. Well, I know our listeners will be very interested to <laughs> hear what is going on with there as well. Scott, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. That was KOTO Scott Franz reporting from Denver. Nothing beats a good night of sleep. It re-energizes the body, makes you feel more chipper, swallows those bags under your eyes, but it also improves your memory. This week, the Telluride Science Research Center will host a discussion, Asleep to Remember, the role of sleep in memory consolidation. While we sleep, our brains stay highly active. Sleep contributes to our health and cognitive abilities, including memory processing. Journalists Judy Muller and George Lewis will facilitate the discussion with Paula Malerba, a scientist and principal investigator at the Malerba Sleep Lab at Nationwide Children's Hospital. The conversation will include discussion on how brain dynamics during sleep support memory and how new techniques leverage natural mechanisms to boost memory performance. The Asleep to Remember event will take place on Thursday, February 3rd at 4 p.m., Registration is required and available at bit.ly slash 357D capital P R capital J. The Talking Gourds Poetry Club Bardic Trails Poetry Night is coming home this month with featured poet Art Goodtimes. Good Times is a poet, basket weaver, and former politician. He has served as San Miguel County Commissioner and Western Slope Poet Laureate. Good Times has been a poetry editor at Earth First Journal, Wild Earth, and the Mountain Gazette. He is currently the poetry editor for Fungi Magazine. His poems appear in the Kinship Book Series from Center for Humans and Nature. His most recent book is Dancing on the Edge, the McCredi Poems. Talking Gourds Poetry is hosting this month's club in collaboration with the Wilkinson Public Library, Between the Covers Bookstore, the Telluride Institute, and the Telluride Arts District. At the event, Good Times will read some of his work with time for questions about his influences and inspirations, and time for participants to share their own poetry. The event will take place on Tuesday, February 1st at 7 p.m. via Zoom. Registration is available at telluridelibrary.org. As climate change becomes more front and center across the world, communities are looking to transition away from fossil fuels. This winter, KOTO is partnering with stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at that shift. Today, we're heading to Coal Basin. The basin, sitting between Carbondale and Peonia, was the site of a series of 20th century mining disasters. Now a privately owned parcel surrounded by national forest land provides free public access to custom-designed mountain bike trails. KDNK's Morgan Neely says the trails offer more than recreation. They're meant to mitigate the environmental destruction left behind by the mine's operators. That's Trina Ortega cruising down a rocky mountain bike trail to the edge of the burbling waters of Dutch Creek. On a trail map, the creek crossing is marked as being at own risk. But really, you could say the same for the entire five-mile network of trails at Coal Basin Ranch, 
four miles west of the historic mining village of Redstone, Colorado. Your closest access to Wi-Fi is in Redstone, and there is a, you know, Carbondale Fire does have a facility there, but it's not always stacked with someone right on site. Ortega is the Coal Basin Ranch and Trails Manager for the Katina Foundation, a Carbondale, Colorado-based private foundation that gives to Native American tribes and funds various conservation efforts. Katina owns Coal Basin Ranch, the 221-acre site of the long-shuttered Dutch Creek coal mines operated by Mid-Continent Resources. Ortega hopes recreational trail design and building can be a model for the restoration of other sites ravaged by old mining operations. The transition of Coal Basin from fossil fuel extraction site to recreation hub began in 1992. Just a year after ceasing operations, Mid-Continent Resources went bankrupt, leaving cleanup of the denuded site to the state of Colorado. It started quite a long time ago, you know, so this is building on those restoration efforts where the community and the state and Run for Conservancy um, and other entities have gone up and done um, grass spreading of grass seeds and wildflower seeds. And the Dutch Creek mines were in use for decades and yielded 23 million tons of coal for American steel mills. But all that extraction had a heavy toll on the land and the miners. The early operations were not benign in the basin as well. In 1956, Mid-Continent Coal and Coke began operations up there. That's Steve Renner, Senior Reclamation Specialist for the Colorado Division of Reclamation, Mining, and Safety, at a presentation on the history of Coal Basin in 2012. The mines near Redstone have a grim history. On a Tuesday in late December 1965, nine men died when a buildup of methane exploded just 15 minutes before the end of their shift. The men were all working an extra hour each night that week to make up for time they were planning on taking off for the New Year's holiday. Fred Hefferly, then District 15 president of the United Mine Workers, told press at the time that he'd complained numerous times about conditions in the mine, which United Mine Workers officials called the most dangerous in Colorado. On April 15, 1981, a cloud of methane and coal dust ignited. That explosion killed 15 men, the youngest of whom was a 20-year-old Glenwood Springs resident. It's difficult to say how familiar the average recreational user of the property is with the mine disasters, which are commemorated by Miners Park in Carbondale and a memorial in Redstone. The bike park at Coal Basin Ranch opened for its first season in July 2021, and Ortega estimates that more than 300 visitors rode the trails during the first couple weeks of operation. A kids camp event later in the summer brought more than 100 youth to the site. Nicole? Um, yeah, get ready. It's Doug Schwert. Z is in zebra. <laughs> U G. A supervisor at Propaganda Pie, a Detroit-style pizza restaurant in Redstone, says she saw a noticeable bump in business from mountain bikers after Coal Basin Ranch opened its trails to the public. Tourism, for sure. As far as the mountain biking goes, like with the Coal Basin, we definitely saw more people up here when it first got started, but there was a long period that. It Redstone is still a sleepy, unincorporated town of less than 100 residents. 17 miles to the north, Carbondale is going through a boom. The average home price exceeded $1 million a few years ago, and most estimates now put the town's population at 7,000. There's a new city market and a paved path along State Highway 133 that takes bikers and runners five miles south to a KOA campground. Pitkin County Open Space and Trails and Gunnison County have planned for years to eventually complete an 80-plus mile path between Carbondale and Crested Butte. 
one more link from Colorado's fossil fuel past to its recreation future. This restoration story is getting people to know the landscape, to experience it, and providing a way for them to experience it safely and also become maybe a steward of the landscape as well. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Morgan Neely. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 20 degrees. Tuesday, there is a 70% chance of snow showers during the day and a 90% chance of snow showers at night, with a high in the mid-30s and a low around 15 degrees. 3 to 5 inches of snow accumulation is possible. Wednesday calls for snow showers with a high near 25 degrees. Wednesday night, there is a chance of snow showers with a low around 5. This has been the news for Monday, January 31st. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Attention Kodo listeners. Mountain Sprouts Preschool is having a fundraiser. From Tuesday, February 1st at 5 p.m. to Saturday, February 5th at 5 p.m., you can bid on a variety of items to help support Telluride Kids at the Mountain Sprouts online silent auction. Items include local staycations, gift cards, yoga passes, and much more. Our grand prize is a three-night stay at Coro Sun Resort in Fiji. So log on to www.32auctions.com slash MSP 2022. That's M as in mountain, S as in sprouts, P as in preschool 2022 to place your bids. Cash donations will also be accepted. Thank you so much for your support. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Cotto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.